Spoiler alert, it is 3 a.m. and I'm wide awake. Been awake for about an hour or so. Been doing a little bit of cleaning up here, but I thought, hey, why not do a podcast video? I've been wanting to do this article. I saw an outside magazine for a bit, and it's called Counterintuitive Bodily Responses and Why They Happen. In fact, it'll address why I'm awake at this hour. And so it's basically by article by Sarah Baker, and it's Sports Scientist Explains Why Our Bodies Seem to Be Working Against Us at Times. And it basically says, you know, our earthly temples are designed for self-preservation, hardwired for survival, with innate responses to kick in automatically when things get inconsistent with, you know, life. Some of these, sometimes these responses are inconvenient. You know, you get a spike of fever when you've got a big, the day before a big race or during a race, or when you're going to go off and do an epic hike, the John Muir Trail, and you just like, God, why is it going to happen? And at the time, too, often when you have these responses, you just feel like, you know, you got run over by a truck, and, but it ended up being okay. You know, just like myself uh, today, my wife's getting her second uh, Pfizer shot and both, and I get my second one on Friday. So we got them almost three weeks ago, the first ones, and we haven't been feeling well. Uh, sorry, but you should get the vaccine if you don't. But it's basically because our bodies are preparing ourselves and preparing defenses for COVID, even though we don't have it. And so that's why you get that feeling like, oh, I'm coming down with something. And when you feel like you're coming down with something, it's because your body's preparing for a battle. So it says, um, the physiological difference responses were written into the human program long before we had marathons or even ran for recreation. And she's talking about how she's noticed some bodily responses by observation or personal experience seem to have really bad downsides and don't seem to have really any upsides. They make no sense. It's almost as if the body was actually making the situation worse. And she says, for example, uh, vomiting and diarrhea as a response to dehydration. Wouldn't the old central liquids department in times of drought quash any reaction so flagrant wasteful of precious fluids? If the water level is already low, why on earth would the natural response be to pump the remaining ounces out in explosive fashion as means of preservation? And so it basically calls these things counterintuitive responses. Two other responses that are counterintuitive are sleeplessness, which I'm having right now as a response to hard training, and inflammation that double dips is both a response to and a cause of injury. So she went to the sports scientist, Ross Tucker, and he has a podcast called Science of Sports Fame, and he basically is talking about the physiology and what's going on here. So she threw out her theories and things she's heard from, and then he gave some really good, concise answers. So as an endurance athlete since 1979 and a coach since 2006, I often tell my athletes, you know, our bodies are, you know, she says, our bodies are indeed very clever and user error may play a role in bad outcomes. And that's definitely the case. I always kind of like when I was coaching high school at Bakersfield High in 2006, ice baths were the rage because, you know, the kids see the pros doing it. And so they all want to do these ice baths all the time. And the thing about it is, yeah, if you got like, you know, you're a professional athlete in your NBA and you're playing, you know, a couple games a week, you know, you've got to get recovered. But, you know, the, the, the whole thing is that swelling and we'll talk about it in a bit and all that is the, the body knows how to take care of itself. And I often tell people like, OK, I used to tell the kids, they'd be like, oh, you know, but you don't understand. We need an ice bath. And I'd be like, well, OK, you know, and, and just, a, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Ice wasn't a common thing except in the winter, you know, so you couldn't have had an ice bath. So how did humans make it all the way to, you know, this present time without taking ice baths and all these kinds of things and our drugs and things? I said, the body will take care of itself if you allow it. 
So the first one, you know, so basically it says, spoiler alert, our bodies are indeed very clever and user error may play a role in the bad outcomes. So the first thing was vomiting and diarrhea and hot weather or in any kind of weather. And if you do ultra marathons, you just see it all the time. In fact, I've had, uh, I've heard um, people say that um, throwing up in ultras is like grass stains in a little league. I think uh, Scott Jurek said that. And uh, I've got friends of mine, Jimmy Dean Freeman, Southern California coach with the SoCal Coyotes. I've seen him, he's so good at it. He'll be at a race or something, not feeling well. And he'll be like, just a second. And he'll just turn over, get rid of it, and then feel fine. In fact, usually if you've got an upset stomach, the best thing you can do is just throw up and get it out. Re I call it rebooting. So what is going on in a hot weather race or any race for that matter? It's the athlete starts having vomiting or diarrhea. And it's just uh, a good number of these cases are wrong and true to dehydration when they're more acutely likely overhydration combined with exertion. He said, uh, Tucker said, in fact, Tucker's from South Africa. And he said, if you've got enough liquid to hurl or poop fa firehouse fashion, you're not dehydrated. Humans are designed to lose fluid over prolonged exercise without harm. And it says, on average, people during exercise will lose weight, technically dehydrated, and will be perfectly fine. We know this because only about 1% of runners end up needing medical attention, but 80 to 95% of the runners lose weight. They are dehydrated with zero consequences. That's because the body is not regulating weight. It's regulating sodium concentration, and it's quite happy for a short-term increase in salt levels caused by dehydration. Right? It's not ridiculous because we are able to regulate sodium in much more complex ways than just fluid. And I remember seeing a study talking with about elite athletes and how many of the world record holders like Galassi and guys, they can drop a significant amount of body weight and be perfectly fine. And we're talking like five, six, seven, eight percent. I can't remember the exact numbers. And it's basically as the race progresses, they, you know, losing water content, but they can still operate at a very high level. And actually they get lighter and lighter, which also helps. Um, and then, um, you know, when I crew in pace or I'm at ultras, but especially when I crew in pace, and I often see athletes having issues with nausea um, and uh, <clears throat> nausea and having to hit the porta potty. And that's the problem when you're doing some races, the porta potties are few and far between. And, <clears throat> and uh, just all those things, they just bring you to your knees pretty quickly. But it isn't a matter of dehydration, it's more about overhydration. And I learned this lesson in my first marathon. So I started running my sophomore year, high school, 1979, and uh, ran cross country. And I got enamored with road running and started doing 5K, 10Ks and wanted to do a marathon. So in 1980, I ran my first marathon, Bakersfield Marathon. It's a great course. Well, not great course, but it's fast. It was a 13-mile pancake flat in February. Do it twice. Started at West High. First lap. It's nice, cool, foggy conditions like it always was. Going along really well, probably. You know, um, I was doing, you know, sub three hour pace all the way, first lap, all the way up to 20 minute, 20 miles. And then I just got a really nauseous stomach and felt terrible, had to slow way down. And then I, you know, the nausea was coming over me, um, you know, just all that kind of stuff. I didn't throw up or have to port a potty, but I ended up slowing down so much that when I crossed the line, I ran 301 which was just devastating because it was like, oh, because back in the late 70s, if you didn't break three hours, people thought you were a jogger. And I thought, I couldn't figure out what had gone wrong. And so then the following year, because there weren't a lot of marathons and I was in high school, I ran the Bakersfield Marathon the following year, had a similar situation. 
my senior year and ended up blowing up really bad with the same kind of, not really blown up, but with the nausea and stuff and did 303. And then I finally figured out, and this was way back then, what it was was, and like how I do now, I train, I don't drink at all. I, I'm going to go off here and another hour or two and do you know 90 minutes to two hours and I will do it without drinking at all. Um, well, so what has happened back in the seventies and eighties, you know, we didn't have water bottles and hydration packs. Me and my friends in the ultra scene, like Eddie Lujan and Bob Moses, they tell me the stories, you know, that you'd get like the, the, the waffle bottle and fill it full of water. I mean, it just wasn't a thing. And so, you know, I trained all the time and I live in Bakersfield. It's hot you know, in the hundreds during the summer. And I just didn't drink, you know, occasionally we'd hit a, fire hose or water hydrant, but we didn't drink so much. And so what was happening was I was training and not drinking. And then in races, you know, and they tell you, you know, drink, 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 get hydrated, hydrate, 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 hydrate. So the day before you're drinking way more than you usually do. And then in the race you're drinking because they got aid stations, you know, back in the day, they'd be miles apart. Um, you know, and then a few years ago, they started being a one mile apart. Um, and then, and so what happened was, I was getting waterlogged and that's why I got nauseous like this article talks about. And when I finally figured that out, I went to Lompoc just before I graduated and ran 255 and had no issues because I just stopped listening to other people saying, oh, you got to drink, you got to hydrate and just went by, you know, thirst and how I felt and it worked and ended up working the same. So that's the first thing they talk about in this article. So the big danger with the overhydration, besides destroying your race or whatever your hike and things like that, is that you die from overhydration. You don't die from dehydration. Yeah, you do if you're like in the desert and a few days go by or a day or two go by, you can die. But generally in a running race, um, if you get dehydrated, you're going to dramatically collapse. They'll come over, take care of you, and then you'll be fine. They'll put an IV in you and you'll live to fight another day. Um, when you hear about people passing away in races, it's often from OFR hydration. And what happens is you mess up your electrolyte levels and, you know, electrolytes were just like a big battery. So you get those levels wrong, the muscles quit contracting and the big muscle here, <laughs> it quits contracting and that's when you die. And so dehydration doesn't isn't the killer. It's um, overhydration and messing up your levels. And the only way they can really help you if you're in a race and that happens is even if they give you saline solution, it's not salty enough. It doesn't have enough um, minerals in it. They have to give you a super like seawater concentration. And very few people, doctors know about that, but that's the way they're going to save you. And so like in the article, the guy says, clinical dehydration happens, just not in exercise scenarios and certainly not during a race where there's drink stations every five kilometers. Um, well, you know, like I was saying before, they used to have the aid stations probably five kilometers apart. They probably in South Africa, they probably do that still. But, you know, then they started making two miles and then they started making it like one mile water, one mile, you know, some sports drink. And races, big city races, finally been listening to the scientists and realizing and they're not having as many drink stations. So it says, it's known that exercise can make us nauseous. It's probably a result of metabolic processes and changes that happen because of exercise. Changes in pH, salt levels, and blood pressure beginning the main culprits. We send blood away from the gut during exercise because our bodies are smart. They know we don't need to absorb nutrients and fluids when we are exercising, it's not a priority. So when we force fluid on our guts, they just aren't prepared or capable of dealing with it. Ergo rejection. And just to muddy the water a bit, while pouring gels or liquids into a nauseous stomach is to blame, dehydration may be a factor in the nausea. And you know, that was one of the things I often tell people um, 
who are doing ultras, you know, like shorter races, depending on how fast you are now, you know, thing, efforts that are under three, four hours, um, you know, anything under an hour, you don't really need to take any nutrition. You've got plenty of stores, you got glycogen, it's gonna last a couple hours, but anything after a couple hours, you may need to take in stuff if you're going too fast. But if you train properly, another thing I do, and the gesture does as well, besides usually not really drinking the race, I never eat during training. And I don't eat a lot in the race because you want to try and get more fat adapted and just learn to pace yourself on the fuel source that you have. And so like, I, I often see people who have these issues in races and bonk or get sick, and it's because you don't pace properly, you go out way too hard, you blow through your glycogen, you try and eat, but the problem is since you went out too hard, all the blood left your stomach because it was like, oh, the kitchen's close. Or like, yeah, and so it's all in your heart, lungs, and legs. And so then you throw food in there and your body just like wants to get rid of it because the stomach shut down. And then you stop, slow down, and eventually you recover. And I've seen so many people, you know, go through the waves of nausea and then they finally slow down and then they're fine and they stop eating because they don't need to eat because even the thinnest person has plenty of fat reserves to go quite some time. You know, kind of talking about water, you can only last a couple of days without water, but you can last a long time without food. The exertion of exercise plus mild to moderate dehydration causes a rise in blood sodium levels, a condition called hyponatremia. It's important to note that hyponatremia is the normal response to exercise, particularly in prolonged exercise. Again, a condition that's not dangerous unless an athlete went days completely without fluid, i.e. getting lost in the desert. And I raise this because people think that sweating a lot causes us to lose salt and thus salt levels would decrease. But that doesn't happen because very importantly, our sweat has lower sodium concentration than our blood plasma. So we can only drive the sodium content of our plasma up as we result of sweating. We are always going to lose relatively more water than salt as a result of sweating. Yep, and that's uh, something I kind of knew but didn't really realize the way they put it. Yeah, so, you know, when you're sweating, you're just losing fluid. You're not really losing a lot of salts. And so even some, I know some people popping all the salt tablets and stuff, it may not be that good of an idea because you're actually your salt concentration is going up and then you're throwing in more stuff. Plus you're asking your stomach to do work when you're racing. So it says, in any event, this hyperneuria might, and some people contribute to nausea. That develops over the course of a marathon or a long race. Then when the person ingests too much fluid, say a drink of 500 mLs or 40 fluid ounces that some people still foolishly recommend during exercise, the body already nauseous thanks to hyperdrenia, rejects the fluid, and then they throw up. So that's not dehydration causing the vomiting per se, but it's kind of contributes because the dehydration, which is not a bad thing, might cause hyperdrenia, which contributes to the nausea in which fluids can't be tolerated. So vomiting and diarrhea are not a response to hydration, but a response to overhydration and exercise-induced nausea. And basically it's, you know, I tell my athletes all the time, our bodies are plenty smart. We're foolish for trying to make them do something unnecessary. So in this case, it is user error. The next counterintuitive response is the one I kind of have right now, training-induced insomnia. Though I don't think mine's really from overtraining, though that may be an issue. It's more just a combination of things that has been talking one, I only sleep four or five hours a night. Anyways, my dad was the same way. So it says that basically, why is the inability to sleep a response to hard training? It seems that you would sleep more than usual to keep up with the increased training. Yeah, you're thinking, oh, I'm just so dead dog tired. 
And I'll tell you, it's interesting, like when you do ultras, uh, you know, or well, any hard effort, but it, it was really interesting when I did my first 100 mile race and I had a whole bunch of friends crewing and pacing me where we ran across, ran the streets of Los Angeles from Corona, 30 miles on the bike path and then up the coast. You know, it took me 28 plus hours and, you know, I'm done. And then it's, remember, it's just like my friends are like, oh, are you tired? And you're just like, no, I'm too wired. And I basically was like, you know, for days, you're just jacked up on hormones and, and adrenaline. And I found that like, you know, um, you run a marathon, you know, it's like delayed onset. Um, you, you know, so you run a marathon and it takes like two days before it really hits you. And I find the longer race, it takes three or four days because they got to clear all that out. So the inability to sleep and says, Tucker says, there's between being fatigued and being sleepy. In the case of training induced insomnia, the body is fatigued, but not sleepy. And so see, I know that's kind of my, my issue now because I feel really good. In fact, I want to go out and train, but it's four in the morning and I don't want to be out there and with the urban outdoorsmen and all that stuff. And, you know, my first rule is stay healthy, stay safe. And I don't want to trip or fall like I did a year ago. Could get on the treadmill, but I don't want to do an hour and a half, two hours on a treadmill. So it says, when we train hard, the signal that makes us sleepier is the cytokines that are part of the inflammation response to training. And cytokines are what COVID, you have the cytokine storm for the inflammation. Sleepiness, however, is complex and the cytokines are only one contributor. You might have that signal in abundance, but other things are overwhelming the sleep mechanism. For instance, pain, chronic pain from muscles and joints can prevent sleep. So I don't have that. Main one though is persistent heightening of sympathetic nervous system because we're training ourselves to the point of being stuck in persistent sympathetic response. And that's probably where I am in a way. Um, it says sympathetic response, increased heart rate. Now, well, as I've been showing you, if you've been watching my other videos, my resting heart rate has been up. Increased blood pressure. Well, I've got the uh, medications that are helping with that. Um, and then a, a washing cortisol fight or flight preparation is designed for short-term use. And I guarantee you, even though I've had my cortisol levels measured many, many times, and they say they're within normal <laughs> levels, I'm pretty sure that is definitely an issue with me, but there's not really much you can do. And they often say, you know, like people who have cortisol, that's where they put all the weight on their in their bellies, they have like a moon face, and I definitely think that's one of my issues. Uh, it says the cortisol levels are high. We're trying to control inflammation, trying to restore the body to some kind of resting balance state. The prolonged stress of doing what that is prevents sleep. In simplified terms, we, we're over aroused and can't sleep. Whew. Sleepiness is the body's answer to damage that exercise incurs, but we can override this regulatory response. Tucker provided an antidote from our knuckle-dragging ancestors explaining why this ability to override sleep signals came about. And I'll tell you, like, I went, I sleep, and I can get, like, an hour or two, and I feel great. Like, I'll lay down, fall asleep, and I can almost feel my body, like, in video game, powering back up. Like I said, right now, I'm, like, ready to go. I'm, like, whoop, and, you know, I definitely, I've never slept seven, eight hours in my life, and, uh, so he says, you know, back in the day, you know, you're migrating or dealing with extreme weather or predators. We need to be alert and have readiness to survive pretty much all the time. Being excessively sleeping might have been disastrous, so we can shut off sleep for the sake of survival. Now our survival, now our survival rarely depends on our ability to be awake, but the physiology underpinning is the same. The sleep deprivation capacity mediated by sympathetic response was never meant to be prolonged. It was a short duration, just until we could escape the situation, but things like persistent heart training keep us in this physiological state. 
So sleepiness is our body's way of indicating it's blown past normal sleeplessness and it's survival mode, something you may not have realized. It's a red flag. Um, ow, said to force quit. At some point, the body will begin to shut down or cut out, process essential life and attempt to help us recover. Again, user error. And uh, I definitely see that, that it's a, a talent for some people. You know, I, I'm always amazed, you know, I try and take care of myself, even though it sounds like I'm not, but um, I do go to bed and I take a lot of naps now. I sleep during the day more. Um, but, you know, when I go to races, it's always amazing how people have such a hard time staying up all night. And um, uh, I was like, oh, didn't you go to college? Um, so I've always had the ability to, you know, do it when I need it. And that's something, it's a learned behavior too. You kind of got to learn that the witching hour, which is about now, which in fact, I probably, when I get done with this, will go back down, lay down for an hour and a half and then be good to go. So that is counter response number two. The third one, counterintuitive response is inflammation. And it's inflammation double dips in the body's response to injury, but what's present, florid and bloated and loud, it starts pressing on the boundaries and causing friction, in general, messing your body up. And it says, inflammation is healing. As you know, inflammation includes a number of processes. The ultimate goal is to remove damage and then repair damage and then restore normal function. And it works beautifully most of the time. Even in animals, injuries are not fatal because of inflammation. It's effective and elegant 99% of the time. Just so you get the message in no certain terms, Tucker said, after injury, chemicals that, sent, that synthesize nerve endings flood into the site and then inflammation swelling presses on the already sensitive nerve endings. Ouch. Ideally, you heed the pain, stop doing the thing that caused the injury, and inflammation moves on to phase two of the healing process. And this is why I'm telling people all the time, and it's only I get people send me texts all the time, I get people sending me photos, and it's like, it hurts here, it hurts there, and your are is injured. And I always tell people, you know, again, with the ice bath, don't do ice baths, don't take drugs, don't pain, pain, pain medications, because then you're inhibiting what the body does naturally. You know, it's called genetics, DNA, you know, and we got here thousands of generations. And so the body knows how to take care of itself. You know, sometimes you do have to intervene, like I'm getting the vaccine. But for the most part, um, when you take, um, you know, drugs, pain things, um, or, <clears throat> you know, ice baths, you're just retarding the healing process. And this is a terrible, terrible idea. And I have to constantly fight and argue with people about that. But it's definitely the way, you know, just ride it out. It's, and you know, I always tell people, you know, it, it hurts for a reason. The body is telling you, hey, stupid, stop doing what you're doing. And, you know, and it gets inflamed so that it won't even let you do what you want to do. You know, the inflammation is almost like a cast. So, yeah, I mean, there's certain rare instances where you might do something to this to get, to get to the finish line. But I tell you, just like kind of avoiding all that stuff is a good, good thing to do. So to wrap it up, it says... That the psychological programming, physiological program, and psychologically, it turns out is not haywire. There may be not enough, there may not be an upside to vomiting, insomnia, or shin splints. They indeed making bad situation worse, and that's the purpose because some Nini has not read the user manual. Tucker defends this physiological program. We have regulation of normal physiology even from very stressful situations, prolonged exercise without fluid, fluid, acute or chronic injury, or very hard exercise that makes us hungry for sleep. We can but we kind of force things on ourselves, drinking more than needed, training despite lack of sleep, continue to train despite injury and pain, and our responses designed to help us instead of cause problems. Our stupidity ironically turns the body's cleverness into disadvantage. So, you know, the old thing, you can't fool mother nature. So 
As always, stay healthy, be boring, not epic.